Good morning. My name is Doug Hill, if you don't know me, and I'm an elder here at Grace Presbyterian Church. And it's my privilege to bring you a word from the scriptures this morning. Back row, can you hear me? Are we doing, doing well? Okay. Uh, let's pray before we start. Father, we do pray that your word would take hold of us this morning. We thank you that that word is eternal. Uh, it is forever settled in the heavens. And you send it out and it accomplishes what you want it to do. We pray this morning that it would have a work of power in us, that it wouldn't just be instruction, which you've given it uh, to us for, but also a word of power that would change us into your likeness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Sylvia and I were married, uh, she decided we were going to have lots of informal pictures. And so she got one of her friends to take pictures at the wedding ceremony and the, I always forget the other things that we have during a wedding ceremony the after, uh, after effects and all that stuff. So we had lots of pictures, and she had her brother also take pictures. And so we had two people taking lots of informal pictures. And so we have a wedding album. Uh, we don't even do those anymore, do we? Albums? Okay. Yeah, the, the young people are going no, the older people are going yes. So anyway, we, at home we have several of these albums. By the way, I always like the one where the one... Uh, photographer is taking a picture of the other photographer, and so we have two of those pictures. That's always a good one. Anyway, so we have a wedding album, and it's chronological, as you'd expect from us, and it's really, really nice. Uh, so this morning, I decided to take down a, a photo album from the church. The church in the New Testament is called the Household of God. So we are the family of God, and I have taken down one of our photo albums this morning. Um, yeah, and this one is, it's kind of a slim one. We have really thick ones. There's probably hundreds of them, but I took down one, and it says tithing, right? And so this morning, we're going to open the fo family photo album and look at tithing this morning. Okay, picture number one. Hmm, this picture is in black and white. It's faded. One corner is torn. You can tell it's brittle, but it's clear as a bell who that is. Okay, help me out. Who's the first person in the Bible to tithe? Who said that? Uh, good, Tom. His name was Abram at that point. But yes, our father Abraham was, Abram was the first person in the Bible to tithe. And in the picture, there he is with a sword by his side. This is when he just got back from the war against the four kings to rescue his nephew Lot. Let's see, there's some servants of his who made up his army. And you can see behind them in some makeshift pens, sheep and cattle. There are donkeys with sacks of grain and wine. And then there's this weird priest-looking guy who is smiling at Abram. And there's a, there's a rough table in front of them with bread loaves and a cup on it. And underneath the picture, we read Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so we learn here that Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, priest of Salem, which was later renamed Jerusalem, acknowledging God to be the true God and Melchizedek to be his true priest. 
For Abram, this was a tithe of thanksgiving and worship. He gave to God the first and the best, and it was necessary to maintain Melchizedek's ministry at Salem. Let's look at another picture here. Oh, here we go. I remember this. Who was the second person? Here's a question. Tom, you can't answer, by the way. You already did. Who was the second person in our family that's recorded in the Bible to pay a tithe? Questions are getting harder, and they're only going to get harder. Nobody? Wild guess? Okay. Did he say George Mueller? Oh, okay. Ferris, not George. No, it would be Jacob, the grandson of Abram, the son of Isaac. Let's see, here's the picture. There's Jacob with his hands uplifted, and there's a kind of large leaning rock. And you can see it's wet, and there's something carved on it. And I remember this story. This was crisis time for our father Jacob. Remember how he had cheated Esau, his brother, out of the rights of the firstborn, and his mom knew his brother was going to kill him when their dad died? So Jacob hightails it out of there and flees to his grandfather's house, which is like 450 miles away. And he's gone about 50 miles, probably two days' journey. He's looking behind him at every step. He's sure that Esau is after him. He's lonely. He's homesick. He's frightened, he's feeling guilty, he's hungry, he's cold, and he cries out to God. And underneath this picture, it says, Genesis 28. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So, same as his grandfather, and I'm sure his father, in worship and thanksgiving, Jacob vows a full tithe. So, these first two pictures, we see that tithing was actually a practice of worship before God gave the laws of Israel to Moses. It was almost like natural religion. There was something in us that said, we need to give to God the first and the best, including our stuff. Let's give a tenth. Next picture. You guys ready? Picture number three. Uh Uh-oh. This one doesn't have any pictures at all. It's just a lot of words in Hebrew on scrolls. Okay, here's a really hard question. I don't even think the scholars know the answer to this one. How many different tithes were there in God's law? (laughs) Thank you, Grayson. Not that you got it right, but this just utter, utter confidence. I, I love it. <laughs> uh, there were either two or three, and a few people think there was only one, okay? But I love that answer. Okay, so underneath the last scroll, there's a summary in English, and it says, Our families tithe in Moses' law. One. 10% of all animals and produce went to the Levites who lived in 48 cities spread out in the various districts of Israel. They taught their local people the law and worship of God 
and the local people paid for their maintenance. The Levites themselves also paid tithes, which went for the salary of the priests. Two, every other year there was a festival tithe for the use of the tabernacle or temple and the three yearly festivals that they had. Three, one-third year tithe for the poor of the land, which was to be eaten at a festival in company with the poor and the Levites. And then there's this tiny little footnote after the summary, and it says, some scholars think that these last two tithes alternated years. In other words, they tithed every year, but they also gave a second tithe every year. One year it was a festival tithe, the other year a poor tithe. Okay? So here we learn that our family's tithes went for what you would think they would go for, ministers and buildings and the poor. Okay. Next picture. Oh, that's a good-looking guy. So it's a guy, mid-20s, swinging an axe at a beautiful gold idol. And then on the opposite page, there's a picture of people throwing grain in bags into huge heaps. Question. What king experienced a great reformation in his time in which one of the first results was the eagerness with which the people brought in their tithes? And the people said, yeah. If you've got a good king, Hezekiah is always a good choice. Way to go, Mark. And the explanation underneath, in the first picture here, where he's swinging the axe, it says, Ahaz, king of Judah, made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned his sons in fire. According to the abominations of the nations, he closed the doors of the house of the Lord. Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place when he was 25 years old. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And then there's this second picture with a bunch of heaps, and underneath it it says, Then the Levites consecrated themselves, and Hezekiah stationed Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres, and the priests with trumpets. They sang praises with joy. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was established again. And Hezekiah commanded the people to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything, the tithe of oxen and sheep, and the tithe of sacred gifts, and placed them in heaps. And I just have to say, may, may God give us a reformation that would include cheerful, abundant giving. But it's almost like this morning, I was, I was at uh, Sunday school. I don't know if this, this doesn't really fit, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, Adam and Eve in, in the garden, God says, I'm going to give you all these glorious trees to eat from. Uh, there's one you can't, though. And so the, the, the book by, uh, I forget his name now, but he says, a Eve couldn't see the forest for the tree. <laughs> I think that's really good. That doesn't fit with what I'm saying here, but I just like that. <laughs> but anyway, something has to happen in our hearts like that happened to Hezekiah or all the tithing and giving sermons in the world are not going to convince us of anything or change us in any way. Okay. Ooh, next picture. This is just a prophet's name. 
in German black letter font? Uh. Last question. Noah. Yeah, last question. Which minor prophet famously and sternly rebukes the people for not giving their tithes and offerings? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What are you, you guys are batting like four out of five, I think. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Malachi. I, never mind. I was going to tell a joke. So if you've heard a tithing sermon, by the way, just curious, how many people have actually heard tithing sermons in their life? Really, raise your hand. Okay, it's about two-thirds, maybe, about two-thirds of you. Well, if you've, if you've ever heard one, it's probably out of this book. By the way, here's one thing I didn't know. Uh, I read through Malachi this past week, and the first verse, it, it says something like, the burden of the word of the Lord by Malachi. Second verse, though, you know what it says in the second verse of Malachi? I have loved you, says the Lord. I love you. I have always loved you. Jacob, I loved you and chose you. And your brother Esau, in comparison with my love for you, I have hated him. I like that. It starts with, actually, all the prophets are like that. Allow me a little interlude on the prophets here. We're talking about tithing, right? Don't get lost. But the prophets... Because they, they just slap you in the face. Have you ever read the prophets? I mean, they just, you, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, that wrong, do this, do that. They are a slap in the face. But that's not what they start with. That's not what undergirds their message. They start like this. God says, I love you, my covenant people. I can never give you up. Your names are tattooed on my palms. What else can I say for you? or do for you that I haven't already said and done over and over. I wanted you to share my life, to give you rest and refreshing, peace and joy and confidence, but that's not what you wanted. Why don't you love me? Why don't you respond to my love? A few of you do, but for the rest of you, you force me to discipline you, and you won't have any of that, so I'm forced to punish you, and even reject you because you didn't want to have anything to do with me. I will send my only son to you. Repent and trust. Okay, thank you for that interlude on the prophets there. But Malachi, after he says, I have loved you and I've always loved you, he begins slapping them. Malachi chapter 3. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Okay, let's see the next picture. There's a people holding bags that have holes in them and the grain is running out, but I'll skip that one. Okay, this one. Now here, we see a picture of Jesus. And he's leaning back against a cushion at a low table and there's this man who's dressed to the nines and he's got a shocked look on his face. This one's really funny. (sighs) By the way, this is what I was going to preach on. That's why the the, um, title in your bulletin is totally messed up. I'm not preaching on that. So, but this is what I wanted to preach on. It was too, too much for me, though. 
But underneath the, underneath the text, again, Jesus just leaning back, looking like he's having a good time. Pharisee shocked. Luke eleven thirty seven through 42. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now that reminds me of Malachi. I love you. Here's what you're doing wrong. That Jesus would go in, knowing what's in the heart of this man, greed and wickedness, he says, that he would go in and freely sit down and have dinner with this guy. I mean, what love. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And by the way, there's a a whole ritual that they had before dinner. There were three different washings during a meal they would have done. Jesus more or less just sat down or lay down and said, let's eat, you know, just to offend them. Okay. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So, uh, yeah all the washings that Jesus didn't do. And then he says, Jesus says, in effect, how can you think that your made-up washing ceremony would cleanse you in some lasting spiritual way? God's eternal laws of justice and love are so much more than your puny rituals. And tithing? Tithing from every last herb in your spice rack, yet not carrying a fig for justice and love. That's righteousness to you? You need a new heart. You need a generous heart, prone to give, to give to the poor. Selfishness has polluted your soul. Unselfishness will purify your life, not washing your hands. But did you notice what Jesus said when it came to tithing? Kind of surprising. He told this man, focus on true justice and the love of God. That's the heart of the law. But don't quit tithing. These things you ought to have done and not to left this other undone. All right, I'm going to, there's some other pictures in here, but I'm going to go ahead and close this and just talk to you for a little bit. Uh, And I want to say, make two points. The first point is, a sound interpretive rule for the scriptures is, unless Jesus or his apostles abrogated something, we assume it continues. God gives this law with all this stuff in it, Jesus and the apostles come along, change a lot of stuff, but we assume that if he didn't change it, then it still continues, okay? Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So, question, did Jesus do away with tithing? Well, I would say no. He actually established at least a tithe in the story about the Pharisee, but I would also be quick to say that he and the apostles established a principle of giving generously that if anything, exceeds the tithe, right? How about the apostles? When the apostle Paul uh, counsels Timothy in making sure that ministers have plenty, of, uh, plenty to live on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, well, you know how in Scripture it says, do not muscle, muscle? Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Wait, is he going to compare ministers to ox? Oxen? I think he is. Okay. 
We'll skip that. <laughs> Don't muzzle the ox from the grain because the worker is worthy of his wages. Okay. We need to be fair to animals. If they work, they get to eat. We need to be kinder in wages to ministers of the gospel. That's a moral principle that Paul derives from the law. Animals give us food. Ministers give us spiritual food. He also tells Timothy, account elders worthy of double honor, which, by the way, is a euphemism for money in that uh, verse, who labor in the word and doctrine. So did Jesus and his apostles abolish tithing? I would say the various individual laws for the nation of Israel about tithing are abolished. But the spirit of tithing, that is giving generously, is not dead, but actually revived in the New Testament. Okay, let's get really practical and reasonable. If we don't give tithes and offerings, and by the way, I don't know who tithes, I don't know anything. I'm just, just here. But if we don't give tithes and offerings, and what is it that Shane always says? His tithes and our offerings. I actually like that. Who's going to pay for the ministers and the ministry they do and the buildings we meet in? This stuff takes money. Um, let me tell you a little story about myself. I grew up in a middle-class household. Uh, my dad said he was poor. I don't know if he really was, but he said he was poor growing up. So uh, when he was a younger man, he always had two or three jobs, and my mom worked full-time. And my mom was really concerned about not just having enough money, but really finding her security in money. And so I kind of grew up, can't buy me love. I mean, I just thought, you don't need money to live on. I mean, I, I just, I didn't see life in money whatsoever. So I became a Christian here at OSU when I was 21. And the second year I was a Christian, the church I was in, probably a foolhardy thing to do, they decided to hire me and another girl, and we did evangelism on the OSU campus for a year. Okay, I'm out there, blah, blah. You know what I found out? It actually takes money uh, to do that kind of stuff. Like, the money we needed to live on, uh, it, we needed materials to share with people. We would do a, um, what do you call it when you bring in a speaker? I forget the simplest words. No, like a conference. We did like a conference. You'll get a kick out of this. I remember one conference we did was against rock and roll music. Okay, it was the 80s. Go ahead, laugh. It was funny because when I became a Christian, I had like over a thousand heavy metal albums. So here I am doing the anti-rock and roll thing. We had a great flyer with Ted Nugent on the front. But, oh, no, it was against Ted Nugent. I'm sorry. But anyway, so those flyers and, all, and the speaker and the, the place over, it, it takes a lot of money to actually... So I learned the hard way that, yeah, you, you still need money, even as Christians. So anyway, that was the story. Oh, should I talk about my days as a teacher at Guthrie? I, no, I'll just skip that. So we have to give. It's just a question of how much. Okay, here's my second point, my second interpretive rule. In the New Testament, all commands, promises, punishments, are actually heightened and strengthened from the Old Testament. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Heaven is sweeter in the New Testament. Hell is actually more terrifying in the New Testament. The promises are greater and clearer. The threatenings are actually more severe. The Holy Spirit is given in a greater measure. It's just greater, greater uh, for everything. 
giving should be greater now than under the law that we've been reading about. The New Testament principle is greater and stronger. Giving abundantly, not just 10%, abundantly is gospel. Paul tells the Corinthian church to get their offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem ready. And he gives this promise. He said, whoever sows sparingly, how's that for sowing sparingly? Will also what? Reap sparingly. But whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Grace there, another euphemism for money. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You know, imagine, imagine if you're a brand new Christian. You'd never heard of anything out of the Bible. You just became a Christian one day. And God showed his love to you, poured out his love in your heart. You knew that your sins were forgiven. The whole world takes on a new, it's like everything is brand new. God loves me. I understand the world. I'm going to heaven. This is beautiful. And then somebody from the church comes to you. Let's make it a timid deacon. Um, Doug, I've, I've got something I need to say to you. Yeah, sure. What is it, brother? Well, um, there's kind of this thing in the Bible where Christians uh, give some of their money to the church. Really? Really? Okay, tell me about it. Well, I, um, I don't have time, uh, but it's... Uh, well, well, how much is it? Uh, ooh, um, 10%? 10%? Can you imagine what the new Christians are going to say? Oh, I thought you were going to say 90%. I mean, it all belongs to God anyway, so you know, I'm his servant, so... 10%? Yeah, sure. You, that's no problem. You want more? I mean, <clears throat> I'm almost done here. A little bit of the history of our church, for those of you who are new in our church. Grace Presbyterian Church began in 2003. It's been, what, 14 years, and there has never been a sermon on tithing or giving at Grace. My son Jonathan told me he's never heard one in his whole life. For the first 11 years, we put the offer, before Ryan came, we put the, that sounds bad. Sorry, Ryan. Sorry. It, this doesn't sound like what, I, what it's going to sound like. For the first 11 years, we put the offering basket in the back, partially because we didn't want to appear money hungry in a seemingly money hungry Christian world. Um, so I don't think as elders or as a church that we're actually, I don't think we're money hungry. I think in the new members class, you do have a little, there's a message, Jonathan Doris put it in there, on tithing from R.C. Sproul. Do you go over that in the new members class? Okay. Um, and there's a prayer request in the bulletin that we keep giving faithfully because of our building. Uh, but again, we're not here to bilk you for your money. Um, our son Jonathan, again, read a story about a church thinking about doing a capital campaign for money. And we've done two of those in the past. But in the book, with the advice of a Christian financial counselor, they decided to skip the next campaign and teach their people the biblical principles of tithing and giving. Not health and wealth, just faithfulness to God's instruction. 
The result was blessing on the church's finances and no need for fund drives. Yeah! Which, I guess as Christians we say, amen! No fund drives! Okay. I think we as elders are guilty of asking all of us to give sacrificially in pledges, which, by the way, is not wrong in itself, but without teaching and encouraging us to be faithful in basic Christian living. God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. So let's finish up. Uh, Here's my counsel. All of us need to pray for generous hearts. Money is deceptive, and the greed for it is also deceptive. We need grace to be givers and cheerful ones at that. And let me finish by speaking to different groups this morning. Now, maybe there's one person this morning. I don't think there is. But maybe there's one who has a really, really sensitive conscience. And they hear this about giving and they say, I'm so guilty. I'm just going to give everything I have, just like those guys in the Gospels. Don't do that. (laughs) Just don't do that. Right? I have 15 reasons why you shouldn't do that, but just don't do that. Okay? That's probably no one in here. To those who aren't tithing, I would say if you're not tithing at least, start tithing. Now, there's two groups of people who don't tithe, I think. First of all, those of you who are just strapped, like we our bills, like we have no extra money. It's all going for different places, you know, rent, car, whatever, food. We're strapped. We don't have any discretionary income. And if that's you, I would say begin to pray and ask God to give you some discretionary income. And maybe make a few choices that are a bit different. Give 2%, 3%, you know, but try to get up, go higher. Then there are those of us who don't tithe, but we do have discretionary income. For you, I would say, what is it we say every week? Make sure our priorities are Jesus' priorities. I think we have that in the offering part. Um, I don't know. It may, it's going to hurt, I think. But maybe you, I don't know, give up that trip that you take every year. I don't know what it is. I don't even want to get into finances. But uh, give. Now, if you're like me, you do tithe, but you never give a second thought about giving offerings or raising your giving above 10% or giving till it hurts a little bit, I'd say to us, what would I say? I would say just like we're called to put sin to death in our members, mortify, kill sin in your members, I think we need to mortify our pocketbooks and our purses. You know what I mean? Get back, money. Get back, greed. I'm going to mortify you. I'm going I'm to give till it hurts a little. You'll do what I say for God's glory. Okay? Well, thanks for listening. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that you are so good. You are good and you do good. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love, with everlasting loving kindness you have called us. Lord, thank you for your good laws that actually bring freedom and not slavery. Lord, we pray that you would uh, make us cheerful givers, not just, um, I don't even know what to say, not not angry, not like this sermon is 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 a bother, but it's a good thing. 
May your gospel go forward in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.